Imagine That Studios presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 5 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Auckland Prison looked exactly as it was meant to, foreboding and menacing. While Aroha knew that not everyone in this place deserved to be here, she was glad that at least Cornelius Hart had been forced to spend some time here. She showed her credentials to the guard and was admitted, though she had to surrender her taiha. Glaring at the guard, she did so with extreme reluctance, but social norms meant she held back from punching him in the face. Aroha was just in the process of explaining she wanted to meet the cellmates of Mr Hart, when a rather out-of-breath, pale-faced guard appeared and hastily asked her to follow him to the warden's office. Concealing her bewilderment as best she could, Aroha obediently followed behind the man, wondering at the speed of the guard's awareness of her arrival. When she was shown into the office, it all started to make more sense. The large room was half occupied by desk, half occupied by a collection of wires, this meant that the woman sitting behind the desk looked like a spider sitting in the middle of her impressive web. The woman, whom Aroha could only presume was the warden, was a round, iron-haired older lady. She might have even been called cheery if she smiled, but she was most definitely not smiling. It's about bloody time, she barked at Aroha so loudly that the agent wished that she had her taiha in her possession. Parker, you can wait outside. Aroha almost glanced behind her to see if the warden was talking to someone else, but her guide had promptly disappeared as soon as she'd been delivered. The name placed before her assailant said, Mrs. Jan Pollock, Warden. Once again, Aroha's appreciation of societal norms failed her. She said nothing, but stood her ground just in case there was an attack to follow. What sort of system are you ministry folk running? The warden leaned her fists on the desks and glared at Aroha. The more agitated Mrs Pollock became, the stronger the Scottish accent became. I sent for some help weeks ago, and now is when you bloody chose to show up. I had to dispose of corpses at night and pay my guards a little extra to keep it quiet. I can't be held responsible for your cock-ups, and I sure as hell want to be paid back. Aroha blinked at her, finally able to get a word in. I assure you the regional director only gave me this case two days ago. And she paused, tilted her head. You aren't talking about the heart case. Mrs Pollock stared back at her. What bloody heart case? I'm talking about three bodies turned into damn mummies right in my prison. You don't happen to read the papers, do you, Mrs Pollock? She waved her hands in the air. When the bloody hell am I supposed to have time to do that? I have half the staff I need to control the most bloodthirsty folk in the country, as well as a budget that I couldn't run a household on, let alone a prison. The warden gestured to the wires around her. The only way I keep control is knowing what they're planning to do before they do it. I've stopped five escape attempts and three riots in the last year alone. Carefully, lest the move be taken as some kind of threat, Aroha put the newspaper in front of Mrs Pollock. Is this similar to what happened to the corpses you found in your prison? It was obvious that though Mrs Pollock had plenty of experience with rough, deadly types, this came as quite a shock. Indeed. Now her voice had lowered to a whisper. The very same. Excellent, 
Arrowhead said. Can you tell me a bit about the circumstances of your deaths then? I am guessing that somewhere along the way your request to our ministry got lost. Paperwork. It can be misplaced by even the best and brightest. A scowl said exactly what Mrs Pollock thought of that. Aroha made mental note not to try any of her own poorly crafted jokes on this woman. The warden gestured over to a chair. If this is spread out to the general population and all, we could be in for a hell of a ride. From my end, there isn't that much to tell. Rawlings, Daniels and Dawkins were in the army together, near as I can tell. Once shared a cell, but I had to separate them. That was when it happened. They were killed in their sleep and not one of my guards saw who did it. Mummified, just like Hart then. Aroha began to take notes. Seems like your prison can't be blamed for this. This murderer is quite advanced. The warden let out a harumph of annoyance. <laughs> I want it reported that we did try our best for Daniels. Once Rawlins and Dawkins were killed, I made the connection. But we kept a watch on Daniels. Extra lighting, more guards. But it was obviously not enough. What happened? Now Mrs Pollock looked embarrassed. The lights blew, and the guard, well, he fell asleep. Odd behaviour, Araha scribbled furiously in her notebook. I would suspect he was more likely drugged than fell asleep. Daniels wasn't. Mrs Pollock pushed a file over the desk to Araha. Save yourself the writing. It's all in here. Daniels wasn't. Mrs Pollock pushed a file over the desk to Araha. Save yourself the writing. It's all in here. Daniel's screaming eventually brought the other guards to the scene. Despite her lack of funding, apparently the prison had at least one camera. The images made even Aroha wince. Desecrated faces, hands raised in a fruitless attempt at defence, lips pulled back from teeth and skin like jerked beef. Can I see the cells where the men died? She asked tersely, sliding the images back to Mrs Pollock. The warden pushed a bell behind her desk and the first guard reappeared as if he'd been pressed against the door. Parker, show Miss Murphy here to the cells where Daniels bought it. As Aroha followed him out, Pollock called out one last thing. Make sure you get all you need. Don't want to see any more of your ministry types around here for quite some time. The door slammed behind them without anyone touching it. Everyone was an inventor these days, Aroha thought. It made her work that much harder. The cells in the prison were small, but surprisingly clean and tidy. Mrs Pollock ran her place like a ship, it appeared, with everything Bristol fashion. The guard led her to the cell Daniels had occupied, and after some problems with his shaking hands and the keys, opened it for her. Aroha slipped in while he stayed outside, shifting from side to side. Parker would have bolted, she was sure, but fear of his warden probably kept him in his place. Putting the guard out of her mind, Aroha sought herself to examining the tiny space. It contained a small bed, a tin pot, and that was about it, so not much to investigate. No one else has been in the cell since, she asked over her shoulder. The guard shook his head. And Mrs Pollock said no one should touch it. Good woman, the agent muttered under her breath as she went to the window. It was immediately evident that this had not been tampered with like hearts. There were no scratches but there were three stout iron bars instead. Whoever had come in to kill prisoner Daniels must have had to find another method of ingress. Bending down, she did find something strange. 
Once again, that fine red, sharp dirt. Definitely not something to be found in this part of Auckland. Carefully, she brushed it into another sample bag and sealed it for later examination. Parker, she turned to the guard. Can you look at the records and find out how many visitors Daniels, Dawkins and Rawlins had? Don't have to, he said, staring down at his toes. Aroha frowned. I rather think you have to. No, he said, his shoulders jerking back. Sorry, ma'am, I didn't mean it that way. I mean, the three of them never had any visitors, not even family. They were horrific men, you see. Child killers. We had to keep them away from the other criminals. They were the worst of the worst, if you don't mind me saying. Aroha nodded, casting one last look around the cell. So no one ever saw them? Well, only us guards and Nurse Lang, Parker admitted. Then I will need to talk to her, Aroha said, leaving the cell immediately. Parker shrugged. Well, she isn't working here anymore. Aroha stared at him until he got the hint. Um, she's working She's working at the public hospital, I think. You can probably find her there. The agent gave him a nod and then turned on her heel, already dismissing the wildly youthful guard behind her. The night was drawing in, so she decided to head back to ministry offices and visit Nurse Lang in the morning. Besides, she really wanted to identify the strange red soil she had found at both locations. The New Zealand regional office was in Wellington, but the ministry did maintain smaller offices in other towns. Auckland office was just above a stable off Queen Street. Aroha entered through a back alley, inserted her clockwork key, and climbed the stairs to the offices. She had the place all to herself, which is just how she wanted it to be. As darkness descended, she made herself comfortable at the bench by the window, flicked on the small arc light and pulled the office microscope towards her. Shaking out both samples onto separate slides, she slid them under the lens. Flicking open the soils of New Zealand, she quickly identified them as volcanic and containing small amounts of scoria. By examining the weathering of the samples, there was only one place they could come from, the volcanic island of Rangitoto. It was a mystery for sure, since the island was considered bad luck and an unlikely holiday spot for either Hart or his prison friends. Hopefully Nurse Lang could answer some questions about the three dead prisoners and maybe how such distinctive soil ended up in that prison cell. Pillowing her head on her rack sack, Aroha curled up on the camp bed at the rear of the office and got a few hours sleep. Next morning she got up with the dawn and after securing the office, made her way to the Auckland hospital in search of her nurse. The great stone edifice was the largest hospital in New Zealand and also quite new was also an audible assault on the senses. Aroha stood in the waiting room and stared about her. It was full of crying children, howling injured, and the old grumbling that no one was seeing to them, which was true. For a long time, she struggled to pick out the workers from the throngs of patients. Eventually, a tall Maori woman with a white cap tied to her head and a brass watch pinned to the chest above an apron and with a clipboard bustled past. Aroha had to grab hold of her arm to make her stop. The look the nurse shot her could have killed, but Aroha had been in worse situations with only slightly more formidable opponents. Yes. Quickly to make sure it didn't come to that, Aroha blurted out, I- I'm looking for Nurse Lang. She flashed her government identification just in time to avoid further conflict. 
Upstairs, the nurse said, already turning away. The children's ward. It got quieter the higher Araha climbed, and that unnerved her. A plain black-and-white sign directed her to the west wing and the ward where the children were treated. In the room itself, some kind of order had obviously been laid down by better nurses than those downstairs. Wide-eyed children stared at her from orderly lines of beds, while three nurses slipped about silently checking on their charges. Aroha noted that there was, however, a knot of people, including three more nurses, at the far end of the ward. When her inquiries with the nearer ones did not find Nurse Lang, she made her way there. Several of the people huddled around the bed were shaking their heads, and Aroha, her curiosity piqued, shouldered her way through to see what was happening. When people complained, she raised her badge defiantly, and eventually she reached the bed without incident. A rosy-cheeked girl of about ten was sitting up in the bed, and the agent had never seen anyone who looked less in need of a lie-down. The girl obviously felt the same because she was struggling with the nurse. But I want to play, she said, wriggling mightily. I don't like hospitals. Not until the doctor sees you, the nurse said, her voice low and patient. It's a miracle. Araha's head came around as one of the bystanders whispered. The agent felt a chill go up her spine. First a horrific death, and now miracles. Clear the area, she snapped, and somehow the spectacle of a Maori woman with a taiha and a badge had soon sent the bystanders to the far end of the room. Only the nurse remained. Nurse Lang? The woman, who looked far too soft-faced to be an effective nurse, nodded, and her eyes were guarded. You used to work at the prison? Another nod. Araha jerked her head to the child, who was already sliding out of the opposite side of the bed. And now you preside over miracles? The nurse shrugged, but a man with a greying beard finally gathered enough courage to return to the bed. They said to prepare a coffin, the man said, scooping the girl against him, as if he expected Aroha to snatch her away. My granddaughter should be dead, and she's not. That's a miracle. An older lady, who had to be the grandmother, scampered up, glaring at Aroha. We brought her here because we heard of these miracles happening here, and look! The agent knew she could cause a scene at this moment. However, her eye had lit on something. Barely a smudge on the floor, but it was the red soil she'd seen at the murders. She looked up with a smile and replied, So very glad to hear it. Then she turned and left. Nurse Lang and her miracles would have no more to tell her. Murders and miraculously returned life. Her mind began to run through the cases she'd read through, but she could not recall anything like this. She could put in a request with the archivist in the head office in London, but with his record she suspected it would be a month before she heard back. Terrible things happened when agents were hasty, and Araha knew herring off without informing her colleagues was a quick way to disaster. When she returned to the regional office, the prim Mrs Farthing was there. The agent scribbled a quick note and requisitioned a ministry ornithopter, as well as a few maps. At least if she did not return, then someone would come looking. By the time she'd done that, evening was drawing on. Miss Farthing glanced at the location and raised one eyebrow. Are you sure you don't want to wait until Agents Beckham and Lord come back on assignment? Aroha shook her head. I feel like this is best handled quickly. I'll be fine. Agents were used to working alone. Resources were stretched, and Miss Farthing knew better than to question Aroha further. 
She tapped the sheet of paper in front of her. Then sign here for the ornithopter and I'll log your destination. Aroha climbed up to the roof and after strapping herself into one of the two ornithopters kept there, set off into the sky, which was already turning bloody with the sunset. It was in keeping. Her destination, the volcanic island of Rangitoto, meant bloody sky. She could only hope her visit there would result in no such thing. The island was hard to miss. Against the dying sun, the wide island stood out clearly, and the cone of the slumbering volcano rose over 800 feet above it. As the sun slipped beneath the horizon and the moon and stars took their place, Aroha slipped goggles of her own making on. They gave her a dim view of the world, but better than nothing. There was a large volcanic field that wrapped around the top of the island, and below that was a cape of low shrubs and stunted trees. Certainly, there were not a lot of places to hide. Experience with all kinds of villains made Aroha look deeper. She knew Rangitoto had its secrets, and though the ground was treacherous, its past had made some interesting locations. Landing her ornithopter on the beach, she used the maps to locate the places she thought of. Under her feet, Scoria crunched, as if to tell her she was on the right track. Rangitoto was a young volcano, the youngest in the field of volcanoes which Auckland sat upon. The last eruption from this island had only been 500 years before, and must have been quite a shock to the local Maori. It had left behind a legacy of lava and ash that was far younger than the weathered locations of the other volcanoes in the area. The scoria that Araha had examined under the microscope had none of that weathering, and that could only come from this location. Lava had flowed down the sides of the island and created a series of tubes that wound their way up the hillside. Amateur adventurers often took day trips over to Rangitoto to explore them, but there were a series of hidden lava tubes that Agent Moran had found two years ago by falling through a bolt hole. At the time, the human changes to the tubes had been unexplained, but now Aroha had her suppositions. Using the map, she found the hatch Moran had discovered, and to her practiced eye, it looked well used. The hatch slid smoothly open, and she dropped down into it, Taiha in hand. Following the tunnels as far as the map went, she found another dead end. She pushed and felt around the edges of the rock, but this genuinely seemed like the end of the tunnel. Just as she was about to turn to leave, her light flashed over the ground by the end of the tunnel. Hers were not the only boot prints in the dirt. Others were there too, small, like her own, but they stopped in one spot. Aroha drew out her taiha and took a position in the same place. Nothing felt different, but when she experimentally rocked backward and forward, she could have sworn she felt something move underneath her, something decidedly mechanical. Girding herself, she twisted a little bit, feeling the scoria grind under her feet. She waited one tense moment and then heard another metallic click. Now there was something definitely moving under her feet and it was carrying her down with it. Bracing herself as best she could, Aroha rode the platform down. When it finally came to a stop, she found herself in another tunnel. Holding the lantern before her, she followed it. She knew immediately that she was entering a burial ground. The smell alone informed her of that. It was the odour of long-ago death. Not rancid, but more distant, like ancient books. 
The lava tube opened into a wider section, and now the lamp was no longer necessary. Aroha slid the goggles off her head and looked about. The widened portion of the tube was lit by candles, large and dripping for sure, but still telling that someone took care of this place. Yet as she walked closer, Aroha was able to see this was no normal tribal burial area. Hine Nui Tupo could not have chosen a better spot. For a start, there were the Dago-type images placed above a niche in the lava. Young girls, three, dressed in a combination of Maori cloaks and wide Pākehā dresses, stared back at her. They looked to be just blossoming into womanhood and beauty, but there was no explanation of who they were, so instead she examined the body beneath. It was desiccated in a similar fashion to the men in prison, and the moko on her chin said she was a woman of some standing. I'd appreciate it if you'd step away from Kiri. It was seldom that a person could sneak up on Aroha, so as she turned about, she expected a slight creature. What she saw filling the tube was far more bulky and menacing than she'd expected. A carved brass face stared back at her, while the rest of her was shrouded by a cape. However, over her shoulder, something gleamed in the candlelight. It was a backpack, and suddenly Aroha realised she could meet the same fate as the men in the prison and Mr. Hart. She angled herself with her back to the wall, knowing that the only way out was blocked. The taiha felt warm in her grasp, but the device and the newcomer's possession she feared might pack more of a bite. Kiri, Aroha said evenly, a woman of strength like yourself. The eyes behind the mask flickered between Aroha and the corpse, and the agent got the impression the dead woman mattered to whoever wore the disguise. You don't know anything. Kiri Hokapa was the greatest mind of New Zealand. She suffered greatly. But she took the power of Hininui Tepo and made it a mission. As the masked figure drew closer, Aroha got a better look at the device strapped to her back. It was bulky on the woman's back and had a long tube running from the end of it. The end of that tube made Aroha even more on guard. It was a long needle, like you might find on some foreign creature like a scorpion. She could only imagine that it had been plunged into the prisoners to drain them of their vital energy. Hinenui Tupo, Aroha said softly. So I see you're on some kind of vendetta, some kind of revenge for... Not revenge, the masked woman screamed. For justice! How is it right that so many good people are condemned to death while terrible men like Cornelius Hart keep breathing? How is that right? Aroha paused to consider for a moment. She had seen many terrible things in her life, many wrongs committed, and many good people cut down for no reason. You see, the masked woman continued, you know what I am talking about, she pointed to the corpse. Kiri suffered. Her girls were killed by a mad soldier during the war. He went on to live a good life on the land he'd stolen and had children of his own. The faces of the dead children seemed to sway in the candlelight, and though she was not a superstitious person, Aroha thought she heard for a moment a whisper in the tunnels. Her hands clenched on her taiha. So what did she do? Aroha asked, most afraid of the reply. She found the heart of the mountain. The woman turned slightly, giving Aroha a better look at the device on her back. 
It was about the size of a valise, and with all the carvings and moving parts, very beautiful. Between the gaps in the machinery, Araha saw a deep red glow. Something in the middle of the machine was burning, giving the device an eldritch power. We call it the touch of Hininui Tapo, the woman whispered. She was only feet away now. You can help, you know. Kiri left the work in our hands, the hands of the daughters of Hininui Tapo. We carry out her work, and I think you've seen enough of the death goddess to know her touch can be transferred. The recollection of her mother's death was very close to Aroha. No one had been sweeter, kinder, and less deserving of death than Mama. For a moment it was a beautiful idea, but she also knew, as well as these things started, they always ended badly. The best intentions that these daughters of Hini Nui Tupo might have, soon enough they would begin letting their own biases in. They had begun with the worst, but the power of life and death would corrupt their good intentions. You're going to have to give me the device, she said softly. It is not meant for mortals to wield power like this. She knew that the charge would come, but she also knew something about these women, whoever they were. They were not warriors. They found people in their sleep. In one smooth movement and a press of a button, she had extended her taiha. The daughter lunged at her, and the agent stepped aside, catching the woman in the stomach with the end of it. She heard the breath go out of her, but she made another attempt to grab hold of Aroha. The agent stepped under her grasp and took hold of her hand and twisted it in a lock behind her back. The heart of the mountain was hot against her torso, and she could almost feel it beat with an odd rhythm. Whatever Kiri had discovered, it felt wild and hungry. Now she was sure no woman, no matter how much she wanted to be Hininui Tupo, could bear this thing with impunity for long. Now, she whispered in a calm manner to the masked woman, we can continue this dance in this confined space, but the martial disciplines are not your strong suit. It will only end with me beating you soundly and removing that mask. Neither of us want that, do we? The woman let out a long breath and struggled for a moment, but Aroha held her soundly. The agent continued, It will take me a moment to cut these straps. By that time, I imagine you will have escaped to that ornithopter you have on the surface. Your time as Hininui Tapo has been short, but you have changed lives. That should comfort you in the future. A tremble passed through the woman, even as Aroha released the knife from the sheath at her waist. With two soaring gestures, she cut the device from the masked woman's back. She fled, daughter of Hini Nui Tupo no more. Perhaps deep down she had known her justice could not be sustained. Yet for Pearl Heart, it had made a difference. Aroha was left holding the device, with its depiction of the death goddess carved in brass. It was warm and beautiful, and just for a moment she considered what could be done with it, those that deserved life could take it from those that did not. It was literally the power of a god she held in her hands. Hininui Tupo had once nearly been overcome by the Maori hero Maui, and Aroha imagined herself taking that place. She would be fated around the world, famous and powerful. 
Before she could go too far down that path, Aroha raised the machine on high and smashed it against the rocks again and again, shattering the delicate device's interior. Then wrapping her hand in her jacket, she reached in amongst the remains and took the heart of Rangitoto from where its creator had placed it. When it was tucked in her rucksack, she took the remains of the life-giving over to where the corpse of its creator rested in the narrow niche. Murmuring a little prayer, Aroha slid the remains of the device in with Kiri Hokapa. Without her and without the heart, Kiri's followers would not be able to replicate the wonder she had made. She would not pursue them. She was no detective and there would be no court case. There never would be. If it was Nurse Lang, Pearl Hart, Mrs Pollock or even Julia Braun, that really didn't matter. Hine Nui Tupo was once again in control of her domain. And that was how it had to be. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, visit ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com to order Operation Endgame and the Curse of the Silver Pharaoh. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. An Imagine That Studios production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank Thank you you for for listening. listening.